Welcome to Amazon Legends, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became power sellers, also providers specializing in helping sellers, aggregators that acquire sellers, and former Amazonians will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here is your host, Nick Urison. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. Uh, my next guest today spent over a decade in digital advertising, working with Fortune 500 companies like Mercedes and Sony and others. And today he's the founding partner of Southcall, which is an e-commerce focused incubator and an exit accelerator. And uh, when he's not working, uh, he's into fitness, lifting weights, and also his main occupation being the father of a one-year-old boy. So with that, everybody meet my guest, uh, Yoni Kozminski. Welcome to the show, Yoni. Nick, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Well, you know, being a father is the first job, right? So <laughs> it's, uh, it's more of a full-time job than I had anticipated. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why women don't get enough credit and they get uh, not happy when you don't acknowledge what they do. It's a full-time job. Well, for all the women uh, and, and mothers listening out there today, all I can say is you're all my heroes because if it was up to men, one generation, maybe two, humanity is dying out. We ain't coping. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, Yoni, you work with a lot of businesses, Amazon sellers who are looking to make it big, right? So they're looking to build a company that is worth something so that somebody one day writes a check. I mean, that's the ultimate goal. So that's what you do all day. You help people grow their operation in a meaningful way and, and then exit in a lucrative way. So that's what you do. So you understand the business. Now, uh, the the old business model, old being about a year old, I guess, uh, was get a good idea, do your research, create a product under your own private label, grow revenues, and sell. So that era is over. Because, I mean, I don't want to say over, it's not as active anymore, and it's not as easy. So uh, tell us some of your recommendations for these Amazon sellers who are still bringing sales, still doing, because entrepreneurs don't stop. Uh, what are some of your recommendations to build their business? So, so before I dive in there, I'll just say, while I don't, I, I, well, I wouldn't say it's necessarily dead. I think what you're really talking about now is that where you need to take your business to is just a different level and and it requires more consideration and more thought and more time and more investment and coming to your question what should you be doing uh when it comes to preparing that business and not i'm not talking about just preparing it for exit i'm talking about actually building and growing it to a meaningful number you know i'm talking about eight figure exits here and and things that are life-changing um you know it's really about diversification it's about building a real brand so like you really clearly put, pointed nick it's not about just finding something on aliexpress and slapping a sticker on it and growing it to 
you know, a million dollars in revenue and selling it. Um, it's about creating real differentiation in that brand and having something that you can stand behind. So also IP is going to be really important in, in these types of conversations. So uh, as far as the, you know, I, I always like to dissect things so that we can take on smaller pieces rather than one big humongous piece. So uh, what is the overall approach here? If we can put it into small buckets of, if you like, objectives. When we talk about scaling a business or preparing or, or getting it to a meaningful number and, and be getting ready for exit, is that the question? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it breaks down into many different areas, right? It's a, it's a hard one to chew all at once. But what I would say is that the first thing that you'd look at is what does a prospective buyer look like? You know, is it a private equity buyer? Is it a strategic? Is it one of the aggregators that are still buying? What are they looking for and what is important to them and work backwards from there? So some of the things or some of the high level topics, and then Nick, maybe we can dive in and, and start talking about them. But I touched on diversification. So that means, you know, not having as we go, go larger and we start to try and hit, you know, revenue numbers of 10 plus million, I would say one of the big shifts that we've seen over the course of the last 20, you know, 12 to 24 months is that getting to a $5 million revenue, million EBITDA, having a, you know, many, many bidders, um, those days, at least in the current climate, and and personally, I don't really see it changing uh, significantly at that level, um, they're somewhat behind us. And so it's how do I actually take it to 10, 15, $20 million? And what is that going to take? So coming back to it, building brand, really important. So having something that is identifiably yours and something that has clear differentiation is going to be one key pillar. Having a degree of diversification from a channel perspective. So not just selling on Amazon. You know, it used to be for a lot of these aggregators, one skew, dump all of your investment into this one skew or grow really, really large. And on the back of that, we'll buy it because it's perceivably easier to operate. Now, when we talk about the buyers of today, they're more sophisticated. They're looking for things that actually have uh, capabilities and resources that they can then plug into. So that diversification around multiple channels, whether it's, you know, Amazon and having a DTC Shopify component to it and having a degree in there or moving to brick and mortar retail or a wholesale channel or starting to have areas of diversification. Also, when we talk about um, multi-country, so not just Amazon US, while it might be the biggest market, the US, uh, if you can expand into the UK and the EU and other geographies that make sense, that also starts to become increasingly more valuable. I don't want to keep going on a rant in there. I'm just being mindful. Like I'll pause because yeah. if you let me, I'll just go all day and tell you all the things <laughs> that you need to be doing. This, Like you said, this no, is what I, mean, I do. Yeah, yeah I just want to uh, get the big picture in terms of the approach. So what I heard you say is uh, don't just focus on one single skew to achieve X number of dollars in revenues. That's not enough. You need to demonstrate your success in a diverse way in terms of channels and also your products. So, so that way there is something. So I want to set our conversation up a little bit for our listeners so that they understand what, um, 
what they can take away from this conversation. So, you know, you know, I do, uh, and listeners know, uh, I repeat all the time, uh, I'm big into scuba diving. So in scuba diving, we have a saying, we say, plan the dive, dive the plan. So, so that way, you know, you can come back without any problems and then keep diving a long time. So business is no different. So you have to have a plan. What is this, uh, what is a strategic plan look like is the first piece. So you have to sit down and make a plan in terms of what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. And then what is your expected outcome? So first of all, is that the right approach yeah, that you will take in making that plan? In, in short, yes. That's exactly, I would say with all of this comes very meticulous planning. And if you don't actually work through and have clarity on what your objective is and what your metrics are when you want to exit your business, then you know what you know what gets measured gets ma managed. And if you're not measuring these key details, then you're not really understanding where you're going. And so, yeah, I would, I would agree. And, and I can definitely, I can definitely elaborate on all of this and share with you sort of how we yeah. approach that planning stage. Yeah. I mean, you, you just said uh, the, the word that I like very much measuring, uh, which gives you data. So, so in this conversation, that's what I, I want to do with you. So that let's dissect that, what that strategic growth plan looks like. What is it that you are doing that is supposed to deliver the kind of result that is acceptable? So what are those metrics or what, what are ways for you to assess the success that you are getting? So uh, I heard you mention uh, diversification uh, a couple of times. So uh, are you talking about diversification of your products or diversification of channels or is there more? Yeah. So I was talking specifically in that instance around channels, but product is a really important one. And, and I'm actually going to follow your lead here, Nick. So I'm just going to take you guys through and, and Nick jump in at any point that you, you feel makes sense. But I'm just going to walk you through now, like how we approach when we, when we invest, you know, when we put a million to $5 million into a brand and we're happy to work with the founder and we're taking them through this growth roadmap, what do we actually do and how do we approach this process? So, so how we look at it is first and foremost, to your point, we define those metrics at what do we expect two years out in terms of revenue, in terms of number of products, you know, both child and parent uh, if we're talking about Amazon specifically, um, we talk about the distribution or the diversification. So which channels are we going to be selling on? And really importantly, what is that EBITDA or, or what is that operating margin? And, and those, I would say, are like the four critical guiding principles as to what we're driving towards. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop there for a second because it breaks down into the five key drivers that we like yeah. to, to dive into. Yeah. So number of products channels you're selling through revenue and ibita yep those are the main focal points like i would say if you are familiar with eos and and the concept of rocks that was actually created by stephen r covey where those are the big objectives that you're driving toward when you set them out and then all of the 
sand and pebbles and water and everything else that you put inside of this cup that you're driving toward should flow through and and be what actually guides the build out of the entire operation up until that point where you exit the business. Okay, cool. So let's look at each one of those. So number of products is the first one that you mentioned. Uh, or uh, would you, b- between the number of products and number of channels, which one is more important? Is someone already has one product. I don't think that there's like a uniform cookie cutter uh, approach that you can take in terms of how many products is is right. Coming back to it, you're always looking at what does the prospective buyer in that category look for and what's the value that they see in the business they're acquiring. Um, what I would say is, is how we actually approach hitting those goals, knowing who the buying audience is, just remembering like one of the partners in this joint venture is an investment bank who sold over a billion dollars in transaction value. They know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I know exactly what every buyer is looking for. I know that they do and they bring that to the table. But what I bring to the table, and I think what's most relevant, um, or what I would rather say, like what our portion of this is, is, well, how do we actually get to hitting those metrics? And, and, and what does that look like? And we break down those four objectives into five key areas and categories. And I think these are the pillars that you build upon in order for you to actually achieve those success metrics. And, and just to sort of, you know, spout them off to you, you know, we're talking, the way we break it down is product, brand, marketing, operations, and general business management. And so those are the four, five categories <clears throat> that we are, effectively planning out. And what we're doing is we're building three-month cadences of what are we going to hit in every quarter up until the point that we exit strategically, reverse engineering. What are the things that are going to take more time versus less time? What are the things that with the money that's been invested that we want to spend early, that's going to yield the highest revenue growth in the early stages that will allow us to then be more efficient as we're bringing it to exit and and be really, really intelligent as to what does the business need to look like at that specific point in time, two years on and work backwards. So, so coming back to it and I'd say, Nick, like, please feel free to jump in it at any time. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go over those five. So each and every one of those four key areas, you break it down into product, Brand, brand, marketing, operations, and general business management. Exactly. Okay. Very good. All right. So, you know, they say that, uh, you know, whatever you hear, you remember only 60% of it after an hour. And that's if you write it down. So, uh, so, <laughs> I, so if you, you kind of, I, I learned over uh, the years that if you repeat it, uh, you kind of it sticks with you. It so sticks. okay, so those five things, but they are subsets of the four areas right at the top level, which was the uh, the product again. There was product, right? Yep. And then there was the uh, top line revenue. Yep. Top line and uh, EBITDA, and there was one more there, uh, diversification. Exactly. Okay. All right, cool. So uh, product diversification, uh, top line 
revenue and EBITDA breaks down into, again, products. So let's now take each one. I don't know if we can cover all four, but we'll get an idea. So let's break down each one of those. And another thing that I heard you mention, which is very important, is you create three-month cadences to execute in each one of those five areas, right? We may have to do another episode to cover this whole curriculum because you, you're giving us the curriculum. Um, yep. Let, let's start the first one, product. And then you break that down into five and then give us an example of the cadences. Yeah, so so to, to sort of um, take it a step further or to frame it for the audience very clearly. So we have our metrics that we want to achieve on exit and that's what we set in you know relative stone. And then on the back of that, these five categories from product to brand management, each one of them are the key topics and areas inside of our business that we're looking to achieve over the course of that two-year journey. And so to start with product, and like I called out, those three-month um, cycles, you know, we might say, right, we know when it comes to product, product development takes time sourcing, identifying the right partner, testing and QA, packaging, design, like that is a long-winded process. So we might say, right, what we want to do in the first three months of our relationship together is we want to effectively identify 15 products that we want to bring to market. And so a large portion of the product component is starting at that point. But we might also say, you know what, though, we want to make sure patents can take time to file and it might, you know, and, and IP and everything that relates to the legalities around it. And, you know, I'm not an expert in the field, but if things are live online for extended periods before you actually get a patent, then sometimes they can be void. So we'll make these decisions and say, these are some of the critical things and the drivers that we need to handle right now. Whereas we might come to channel expansion when we talk about the marketing component of the brand, how do we move on to the next uh, area and say, you know what, we actually, we've got a D2C store. It just needs to be optimized. We need to push go on the media buying component of it. And, you know, we have the audiences and the lists and we know what we're doing, but that's not the most pressing for right now. And so we'll actually, we'll actually work backwards to, to figure out where does that make sense? So what we're actually doing is we're plotting out every single activity and, an element that we want to achieve over the two-year period into these three-month cadences or these three-month increments. And on the back of that, we're actually working toward what we would define as the growth or exit roadmap. Yeah. So here, the focus is on, obviously, diversification of your product pool and then also securing your intellectual property and and at the same time creating... Um, somewhat of a following for it uh, through the marketing efforts, right? That's where the focus is. Yeah, again, like it would differ from brand to brand. Like I'm just throwing out, just for anyone listening, like I don't want you to say like, this is how we approach it. Like it, it's very different for every brand that we're invested in right now. But um, the key point is that you, you work through. So brand, for example, so product might be things like reducing the cost of goods sold and sourcing and finding a better manufacturer for your product, not necessarily cheaper. You might want to go more upmarket because you can derive a higher value. So you'd plot it out over the course of that two-year journey in those three-month increments, and then you would move on to, to brand. So brand might be elements like having a very clear 
brand identity or a brand refresh or having a degree of uh, a loyalty program or you know strategies on how we can actually you know increase that um, LTV lifetime total value of a customer who is already inside of it and how do we tie in the products that we plan to bring to market that are aligned with our brand to then actually start to um, grow market share, not just with our existing brand uh, evangelists, but also people beyond and and things like that. So those yeah. might be the areas inside a brand, for example. Okay. All right. Um, and then uh, let's move on to the out of the five. So we, we kind of covered product and brand. Uh, let's move on to the next one. So what would be your approach there? So for marketing, you know, we'd be looking at things, again, depending on where the channel is, it would still be the same, whether it is just DTC or Amazon, but, you know, things like conversion rate optimization, you know, optimizing our media spend, looking at where our traffic is coming from, like any part of the digital marketing mix, um, exploring, you know, this is where that DTC expansion and the channels that we're focused on might come into the to the equation what identifying the right markets to grow into um and and effectively expanding you know if you're just in amazon or amazon us expansion to canada and other markets and things that are low hanging fruit so those would be the things that we look at inside of the the marketing of the brand itself and i'm not talking about the marketing of it when you when we look to take it to exit that's a thing outside yeah. of the business owner's wheelhouse so yoni um as far as the the value of it, yeah. imagine a company that's doing well on Amazon and now they are at the crossroads. Because as you know, you can't go into multiple different directions at the same time. So you have to focus and build one channel at a time. So um, what is a higher value? Launching a Shopify channel, for example, versus launching... An international marketplace. I may be going into Canada, Mexico is the easiest one under the unified login with Amazon or uh, European market. So which one, in your opinion, is higher value? Again, it, it really comes down to the situation and the prospective buyer and what they're looking for. But what I would say is there's pros and cons to both. So I would say, let's take the you know, the defined buyer out of the equation, I would say, if you are to expand through uh, Amazon and move into Canada and the EU and Germany, um, far easier from a launch perspective, from getting it off the ground, you understand the system, obviously, it's a new environment, but it's not all that different. Um, that's going to increase, that's going to increase the value, um, period. If, if, Again, coming back to like what our driving principles are, if the EBITDA is there and the revenue growth is there and, you know, we've achieved the goals that we've set out. Mm -hmm. On the other side, though, if you look to launch D2C or D2C makes up a 1% of your total sales, if you can take that to 10 or 15 or 20% of total revenue and maintain uh, that value, then all of a sudden a, a few things happen. One you're diversified. And so there's a degree of risk mitigation that you're not totally centralized in a single platform. You know, we all know the fears and the things that can keep us up at night being Amazon sellers and, you know, something could change and 
and we're fighting the good fight and trying to solve for for a lot of these problems when you have that degree of diversification um you know that adds uh i would say or or helps to increase the prospective buyer pool for a couple of reasons i'd say one if someone was totally concentrated on Amazon, didn't have a DTC footprint at all. And they were like, I can run this business and make sense with my product portfolio. And now I can actually launch onto DTC because I have their processes, their SOPs and how they're approaching it. And that becomes intrinsically valuable. So coming back to it, if you understand what your prospective buyer pool looks like, and I would say you feel confident that you can actually launch on DTC. If you're not there, I would say candidly, much harder to launch DTC and start with media, like real media buying strategies outside of Amazon and proper traffic and website optimization, conversion rate optimization. Um, it's, it's harder and more expensive, but you own the relationship with the customer long-term. And so there's, there's a higher valuation over the course of time in terms of what that business is worth. But if you're in the DTC camp and then you launch onto Amazon, I would say absolutely. If the product makes sense inside of the marketplace, go for it. Okay. So what I'm hearing from you is launching in other marketplaces within the Amazon ecosystem is not as much a diversification as launching your own D2C channel. Again, it depends on the prospective buyer. Like it depends on who is buying the brand. And what I'm saying is if you can get it up and running and have that data say, I'd say, I think it opens up the opportunity more. Um, but that said, it could also have, like if we look back to a couple of years ago, if you're, you know, Aggregators weren't interested in buying brands that had a DTC footprint. They just wanted to aggregate Amazon-focused businesses. And I still think that there are people uh, and businesses with that mindset. So again, like everything I'm sharing, I just take it with a grain of salt, guys, uh, because you really have to know who you're going to you know, potentially sell yeah. to. Okay. All right. So, I mean, in, in launching your own website and then going through everything you mentioned and first of all it comes with a startup cost where you have to get yep. your website done and then there is traffic you know the, the cost of driving traffic to it that's the the next challenge which is the most expensive yep and then the conversion is another piece because how is how is your shopping how is your checkout behaving, right? So what is your shopping cart abandonment rate? So usually those numbers are huge. And of course, that's where you are bleeding and you need to optimize. And and I actually wrote a whole article about this. The online retail challenge is, comes with the upfront cost. Then you have to uh, drive traffic. Then you have to make sure you're converting. Then if you do all those things, even if you have deep pockets, it's hard to do with, limited budget and you have you achieve it now you've got a fulfillment operation that you have to be in charge of where your margin said to allow 3pl and things like that i'm i'm not uh, obviously I, i'm not advocating against it uh, by all means i'm just saying these are the things You're, that these are facts that, yeah they, these, these are, are the these facts, are facts. Exactly. yeah yeah so i would say if you're not ready if you're not ready for that leap and you don't have the capital to invest and it's 
it's not an overnight success. That's why coming back to the, the, the point here, like launching into a different marketplace, another Amazon marketplace is always going to be the path of least resistance and the thing that you'll be able to scale up quickest with, you know, with the, the biggest yield in the short term, typically. Um, it really depends as well. Like come back to it. If you're trying to hit eight, you know, become an eight figure, 20% margin business, then the, these are the types of decisions you start to make and say, well, how big is the total addressable market? And if I really get my product strategy, my brand strategy, right. And I know what the next 15 products are and they're aligned with my audience, my audience is going to keep buying them and I can increase the total lifetime customer value here. Then building that owned list of customers where I can market and email them directly and bring them in through Facebook and um, TikTok and Instagram and, and do all these very strategic things to own that relationship, then it starts to become a very different animal. And coming right back to the start of our conversation here, I think the big shift and that everyone needs to be sort of absorbing in, in our conversation here today is that you need to be a real brand today in order to have the degrees of success that we've seen over the course of the last three or four years where it's been an absolute buying frenzy because multiples aren't going down once you start to hit you know some of these larger numbers. It actually, they grow. That's typically how it works. And so if you can get through and figure your way through this journey on Amazon, Amazon and DTC, a mixture of both, retail, wholesale, whatever it is, if you can get to these really meaningful numbers, then all of a sudden, um, it's a totally different game that you're playing. I want to introduce Cellcore to all my listeners. As you all know, it's essential to add another selling channel to Amazon. Even though Walmart is the natural addition, you need the know-how to hit the ground running. Cellcore is a Walmart-approved agency for launching and scaling Amazon brands on Walmart and even getting you into Walmart stores. They manage over 400 brands and 100,000 products. They were kind enough to offer my listeners a free comprehensive audit and a $500 statement credit. Visit www.cellcord.co forward slash legends and mention Amazon Legends to activate this offer. But do it quickly because this offer may not last long. www.cellcord.co forward slash legends. So I have a question for you, Yoni. Um, for someone who is listening to us and saying, okay, I'm gonna do this. And they've got a good product everything is ready to go, but they don't know how the market is going to receive the product, right? So that's the first challenge. So you may come up with an idea and do all the research, but you need that user feedback and see what the customers think about it. So is it, I understand this again, will come down to the investment. So uh, I'm just saying from, not for investment purposes, but in your experience, knowing everything you know, what is a better way to start? Launch on Amazon first or launch on your website first so that you have direct relationship with the customers to get an idea about um, where your product stands in order to continue building it? 
if this is a product that fits Amazon and DTC, so let's exclude like very high-end fashion, which typically doesn't do great on Amazon as, a, as an example category. Let's say that it fits both molds. I would be very inclined to say Amazon is going to be your safer bet and your better bet from a launch perspective for, for a multitude of reasons. I think one, the cost to acquire customers in general will be far lower and your ability to get exposure and understand how people are interacting and purchasing, the feedback loop is much shorter. So yeah. I really think that Amazon is where I would go and, and test and launch. And as I have proof of concept, again, this is assuming that you don't have a large audience and a database and an email list and you're, right. you know, you're not using the right tools and you know, you don't have that degree of experience and sophistication into your operation, then Amazon would be my personal choice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this, because this is a conversation that I usually have with people who are looking to launch their product uh, and they say, oh, you know, we want to own the relationship and we want to have our customers uh, directly be able to respond. So that's why we're going to launch on our website. Uh, I say definitely not. I mean, totally in agreement with you. There is one other thing that I would add to this is Amazon actually provides services for you to collect customer feedback yeah where you know the, the costs are negligible like there's a for those who don't know I'm, I'm sure at this point anybody who is on brand registry yeah, and have access to the seller central options on, on their menu uh, know that there is something called a vine program that you pay $200 for and then Amazon will go out and invite people to purchase your product for free, but they are supposed to be leaving feedback. So, and that's usually honest feedback. It's supposed to be. So, I mean, it's there just for you to get an idea about how your product is received by the market. So I think like the way to, to, to look at it, like to your point here is that the amount of money that you would have to invest if you're, you know, let's say we're starting at the same we don't have a whole brand equity behind us with all of the historic data and information around our exact ideal client profile, ICP, and all of that stuff. Launching on D2C means you're going to have to come up with you know, a whole variety of ad units and ad creative that are for you know, you might need to create content for TikTok and for Instagram and for Facebook that are all different modules. You're going to have to go through and actually understand the media buying strategy and how you can approach, you know, effective remarketing. There's, there's a lot of technical. And then what is your email onboarding sequence for that? And how am I testing that out? How am I approaching like pure marketing here? I think that the, the num amount of time, the amount of variables that you're having to factor in and the feedback loops, it's just, you're going to end up dumping a lot more money into it in general. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, totally. There's so many. And, you know, in my article, I say, look, uh, let's assume you do all these things in the shortest possible amount of time with deep pockets, which nobody really has anyway, but let's assume you do. Then you, you're going to get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of orders as a young operation 
what kind of business do you want to be in do you want to be in fulfillment or do you want to be in building your value yeah, where your efforts are focused in one single area ideally or not too many anyway and even if you're using a 3PL, that's not just, okay, I have a 3PL. No, you've got systems integration, you've got uh, returns, refunds, blah, blah, all these things uh, are. So just be careful. These are, as you put it, the facts of life that one has to recognize and be prepared for. I have another question for you. This, this is another one that comes up from time to time. Say you are selling on Amazon and you're considering diversification, um, and you have your website on the other side, but you're not selling through it. Building a following based on your website presence and then driving people to it, but purely for the purposes of building a following and then leveraging that following to drive business to Amazon. Uh, what are your thoughts about that business model? I would say that there's, again, definitely value in having interactions with your audience. If you can do it in a meaningful way that if you're tracking the ROI and, and what it means, I think that there's definitely an argument to be made. I know that Amazon came out with a couple of years ago now, the ability to have the badge where it's buy with prime and it, it just plugs in. So I think that there's value in that. I think that it also comes to like the strategies again, that you're uh, employing for your brand and your business. And just to give you like an example, thinking on my feet here, if you were to build a really high value SEO strategy that's focused on what it is you're trying to achieve here, I think for you to have that ownership and be driving all the value to your website and then distributing it to uh, Amazon, it gives you a whole lot of power all of a sudden. You know, having the influences that you might um, deputize to then work with your brand to drive traffic, building that following, it just gives you an asset that becomes intrinsically valuable for you to dictate what it is you want to do with it. And, you know, I'll say I came into the world of Amazon and grew an Amazon brand on the back of having more, um, you know, uh, pure marketing, online marketing experience for 10 years. And I'd entered the Amazon space thinking that, Amazon was a really good marketing tool, but I want to build D2C. And I learned, at least back then, this was sort of 2018, that you couldn't get the conversions, especially back then. You couldn't hit the numbers that you would hit in the same time frame. And it would take years and years and years of work to, to have something even remotely comparable back then. So coming back to it, I think that having a really strong... Um, marketing presence is always going to be valuable if you are able to track and convert and and make sense of of how you build that brand but just going into it knowing that it is time investment it is financial investment and it is something that i i would believe it's about the long game in in those types of instances whereas with amazon you can get away with a lot more a lot quicker and and likely achieve quicker success and you know who's to say not you know that it won't be the same degree of success yeah exactly i mean uh, amazon has taken away and i remember when i was a seller we also had our website and the biggest problem was the shopping cart behavior um, in terms of consumer behavior as well as technical because things break 
you know, things don't show up and a different scenario is international customers and then repeat customers and what information you want to show bells and whistles and blah, blah. So all those things contribute to your conversion. Ultimately, uh, it's my favorite word. Always I talk about conversion. Conversion is the magic bullet that is the cure to all illnesses and achieving a high conversion rate on Amazon is far easier than achieving a high conversion on your website. Uh, so, uh, Yoni, I want to move on to the operations and general business knowledge, because I think they go hand in hand. So uh, let's discuss what is important for businesses or those who are looking to build a company that is of value. What are some things that matter? Yeah, so so if we look at operations first, um, it would be having clarity on your inventory management approach uh, and your supply chain and logistics. You know, how do you optimize that process and make sure that financially it's as efficient as possible, but but also when we talk about prospective buyers, that it's a really seamless experience. So you know, narrowing to key suppliers as opposed to having. 50 different suppliers that, you know, and I'm not talking about eliminating backup suppliers and having that degree of security. I'm talking about like you have, uh, you know, one of the things that we used to sell, um, we had a couple of really great products. It was grow your own bonsai trees, but one of our products had 17 different suppliers, these candle making kits, and no one wants to touch a product like that. You know, if you can't consolidate that to three, four, five suppliers, then you're not working hard enough to find things that are actually more um, streamlined and, and interesting for a prospective buyer or something that's much more uh, palatable to, to acquire. So other operational things would be, um, yeah, just I, I would say those things that relate to that supplier management. So having um, that diversification from a security standpoint, but having real clear improvements and goals around you know, also things like what are the SKUs that make sense and removing non-performing SKUs. Too many business owners sit on things that maybe if I gave it a little bit more love and attention, it could, you know, if you're not going to give it that love and attention, it's not going to get there. So so I would say those are some of the things that we would we would look at from operations. Again, off the off the top of my head here. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm hearing uh, a lot of numbers game here. So operations really, and at the end of the day, you said it right at the beginning, uh, you can't make progress in an area you can't measure. So uh, operations uh, seem to be all about numbers. And you, you brought up the subject of inventory management. A lot of people, they just, obviously, they look at Seller Central, they see how many pieces they have but they don't, there's no real tracking of how many pieces they have in stock, how many pieces are already in the pipeline on a PO, and how many pieces at Amazon, and then what is their sell-through rate, how it all comes together. I don't really see people making that a priority over and over. And uh, my, favorite, my favorite question is, take your net profit you generated in a month. Compare that to the amount of inventory, the value of the inventory you had at the beginning of that month. What is the percentage, right? So they carry, that's ultimately is where the money runs out. 
Because if you are not managing this and you are stocking up too much or sales are slowing down and you keep buying, that's where the, the disasters occur, right? Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, people are buying businesses because there's an opportunity, you know, unless you're trying to buy distressed assets, which, which is not the game that we're in and not the game that we're trying, you know, these yeah. aren't the brands we're trying to sell. Um, you know, your profit margin at the end of the day is, is is really everything when you come to this moment in time, to be very clear. If you're building toward a goal, you know, for right now, for me and my business, I don't um, care is the wrong word here, but I'm less cautious of how profitable we are because we're in real growth mode across the group of businesses that I'm running here. And to, to sit there and have stacks of cash in, in the bank it's actually wasteful because I want to grow this thing and I want to actually see it. it, it it's wasted investment. So, so I'm just saying being very intentional about what it is you're trying to achieve at that moment in time and exit is very much about those, those margins. That's it's a, it's a really critical point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was on a podcast myself the other day and then they asked me a question. They said, what's the most important thing for a seller? to look out for. And, and I said, you know, uh, it's kind of something similar to what you just said. I said, you know what? I don't care about top line. I don't care about EBITDA, how much net profit they're making. I don't care about conversion rates. What I care about is how healthy is the operation. And that means cash. And the way I measure it is just the way I described a minute ago. Take how much net profit you made in a month. and then. Compare that to what was the total value of the inventory you were carrying at the beginning of the month. If it's a small percentage, that means you're gonna you're not going to see a penny of that net profit for X number of months. So that means you are gonna be in a cash crunch all the time. And I say to people, you know, you ever find yourself, I don't understand. Um we're growing all the time. We're making money, but we never have a penny in the bank. Why is that? You know, if you are asking that question, you're not managing your inventory right. Your inventory management is not in the right place. And ultimately, this can be disastrous. And of course, the real deadly piece of this is how much of that inventory you had at the beginning of the month is actually stale that doesn't yeah. sell which is what you touched on, right? If something is not performing, kill it, right? You know what I mean? De definitely, definitely. I agree with you there. I would say that definitely like, not to scare everyone off, like it is more costly to grow an e Like as an e-commerce business grows, so too does that demand on your inventory. So, you know, just being realistic as well with the model that it is, like you can be having a really great growing business and, you know, things that you would then start to dive into is like, what are my terms with my suppliers? If I'm at this size and this volume, am I getting economies of scale? Am I getting better terms? Can I have an extent, you know, like there's a lot of different levers that you can pull to, to find, uh, you know, the right outcome so that you're not under that sort of cash crunch all the time. But, but to your point, if every, if all those things are in a good place, there's no reason, you know, you should be really asking yourself the hard questions like Nick very clearly pointed out in, you know, what's going wrong here? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, again, 
as you put it very nicely at the beginning, facts of life, right? So this is it. If everything is working nice, that doesn't mean that you'll have an easy ride. You still have this cash situation because everything going right means people are selling, sales are increasing, which means you have to carry more inventory, which means placing more POs, paying up front the per percentage of it. <laughs> so the, the never-ending story. Um, okay, so bottom line, what I'm taking away from this as far as the, the chapter, so to speak, on um, operations and general business, it's really numbers. It's uh, identify those numbers that are important to you and then make sure that you are on top of them. Um, about general business knowledge, let's talk a little bit about team. So what is, I mean, again, you know, understanding what is the preferred kind of investment, uh, but also as a matter of facts of life, full-time employees versus contractors offshore. Yeah. What is more favorable? What is your person? Yeah. I mean, you know, this fits into that last category, business management, um, in terms of this roadmap that we like to work through. Your question specifically, again, it's always going to depend on the business and how they operate. Um, full transparency, one of my companies is an offshore staffing business out of the Philippines. And I'm personally a huge believer in you know, in in the uh, geo arbitrage play, I think that there's really great talent that are going to cost you significantly less in other geographies. You're not going to be able to, in my experience, build every single role that you would want to have fit in your company. But I have over a hundred people full time in my group of businesses working for our business, and you know, ninety five plus ninety five percent of them would be Filipino. Um, so I would say that building the right, uh, processes, systems, accountability charts, and having very clear metrics across your business is what actually allows you to create much higher degree of effectivity in working with high value, low cost talent. So it comes down to your degree of maturity as an operator and experience. But if you get that right and you have the right SOPs, and I'm not talking about, um, I'm not for, for us, like I'm not talking about VAs that do data entry and scraping and all of that nonsense. I'm talking about like dedicated client success managers and middle management and, you know, a head of, you know, a director of client engagement and operations managers and project managers and creative directors and designers like i'm talking about serious roles you know everything that we do all of our stuff is is filipino powered but the reason why we're able to do that is because we're building clear accountability and organizational charts and running on methodologies like the entrepreneurial operating eos that enable us to to run um with people in all regions and geographies so so just coming back to it like my my preference is I want to push the envelope as far as I can to pay the least that I can. And we pay, you know, I'm paying fair wages here. I think the, our team are probably some of the most well-paid people in the Philippines, but it's still a far cry from what it would cost me to hire someone here in Israel or in 
the US, especially when you start to bring on like the, you know, the very heavy taxes that you pay here uh, on top of all of that and, and the compliance components that go into um, working with local geographies. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. It's, um, it, it's a challenge building a business and hiring locally, even though we want to do that as much as possible. It's just as a price tag and, and you just have to sit down and calculate. It's like what, um, just like any other investment you're making. Uh, one thing that I heard you say is having clear guidelines, you know, SOPs, those are things that you not say. In other words, you can't just be expected to go hire somebody and then leave them alone and then just tell them what to do every now and it's, it's not really the way to do it. You need to have defined ways of training them, bringing them up to speed, monitoring their performance as well as collaborating with them with the online tools and uh, so that, that you know where their time is, is is spent. And for local talent too, like having well, your four, you know, your four R's around your job description, having very clear KPIs and metrics that align with your business objectives, giving them correct feedback loops and understanding, am I on track? Am I not on track? You know, like I think, and and this is my point here is that, having those structures, whether you're locally based or working remotely, especially in the current environment where most people are remote, you know, uh, which which becomes another interesting layer about like local talent versus remote. Like now what's the big value difference if everyone's working remote, um, if you can find talent that's at that capability, but that's probably a whole nother podcast and discussion. Um, but, yeah. but to that point, I think that those are the things that help get your business into a really healthy position. And these are all the things that we talk about in, in the business management component of it, having the right hiring roadmap, having the right process improvement plans and all of your processes documented, having that org strategy accounted for, legal, tax, compliance, you know, having your accounting at, you know, at, at the right you know, gap. Everything needs to be really buttoned down in this function of, of this roadmap. So obviously, these are all things that add to the value of the company you're building, right? So uh, lack of it also at the same time uh, impacts the same way, the value. Absolutely. I mean, we see through our consulting practice and how we even got into South Coal is that the buyer pool expands when you have very clearly documented SOPs and the multiple often goes up as a result of it because there's more people bidding on it a perceived buyer can walk into the business the same day and know how to do absolutely every aspect of it. So of course it's going to add more, more value. If you have your accountability chart with everyone's key performance, everyone becomes uh, switch in, switch out when you put those two things together. So I can literally lose, hopefully not, but I could lose half my team tomorrow. And all of a sudden it's, I know what the role I'm hiring for. I need to bring that person in. They understand what they need to do. Onboarding is accounted for, reduces my time in the business and, you know, it becomes plug and play would be probably a little bit too far a stretch and, and it's not yeah. exactly at that level, but it becomes way more digestible. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, um, I can speak from experience that uh, the first time I started outsourcing to offshore people, it's, um, I had nothing, and and by the way, the best way to build all those materials and the procedures and everything 
is by simply documenting as you do it, right? It's not like homework. Okay, I'm going to go do this now. And then, but as you bring people on and just take the time and document everything, record the training videos or whatever, as you're training them, record the videos and then write up the procedures. We've got a couple of episodes talking about how to build that infrastructure. Uh, so it's it's a world of its own. So it's uh, it has a lot I, of... I mean- I mean, yeah, I've got I've got 40 full-time management consultants in Escala, our process improvement practice. And and that's what that's what we do is we go yeah. into businesses and we build, you know, um Fortune 500 level SOPs for businesses. Like I'm saying, if you wanted to do an episode on that, it's a whole other episode <laughs> in our methodology and how we approach it and how you can do it at home. Yeah, but I think definitely uh, it's a good idea. Well, Yoni, uh, as we dig into the business practices and where things can be done and we can go on for hours, but uh, obviously our time is going to run out. So um, thank you for this conversation. It's most valuable. We probably will need to do, uh, we'll have a discussion and we may like map out a, a few episodes to cover different areas so we can get into it. Uh, so uh, let's get to know you a little bit. So tell us about Yoni, who Yoni is. Tell us, start with where you grew up and your early life experience is what, is what I'm curious about. Yeah. Um, this is the therapy session, right? This is the, this the is therapy the, session, my favorite. Is, uh, I've needed a therapy session all week, so this has come at a great time. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Um, so I, I hope my accent still comes through. I grew up in Australia. I'm Australian born and uh, have a, an Israeli father, an Australian mother. And yeah, that was that was my my early life. Well, until I was 27. So still to this, at this point, still the majority of my life or Two thirds of it, at least, was spent in Australia. So, what's it like growing up in Australia? Is it like running around and playing games with kangaroos and uh, having boxing match with those? Kangaroos? So, what what is that like? Yeah, that was. I mean, that was my childhood. I had a kangaroo in the backyard. We used to box a couple times a week, and uh, yeah, Joey, his name yeah. was. No, uh, no, I, I, I grew up, I grew up in the city. Um, I, I grew up in, in Melbourne. It's, you know, 4 million population of 4 million in Melbourne. And I would say, you know, I've lived in Tel Aviv. I've lived in Los Angeles. Um, so I've got a little bit of perspective now in terms of the, the differences. Listen, it was, you know, somewhat suburbia, um, just on the edge of the city. Um, it's a big city. There's a lot of activity. It's very exciting, um, place and I think culturally, um, you know, I mean, I, I am Australian, and, and it's definitely the culture that uh, feels that it's very laid back. Um, you know, obviously there's a degree of uh, seriousness, but but I don't think anyone takes themselves too seriously, and I think that that is something that you know the rest of the world can can learn, particularly Americans can learn from uh, from the Aussie culture. Well, yeah, it's the environment is very important. So, you know, you and I had a couple of discussions about how the environment affects people's uh, psyche. So growing up, when was the first time you realized you had interest in business, money, or selling something? I've heard all kinds of things that motivate people to do this at a very young age. Yeah, you know, I I... I wasn't one of those guys uh, or girls for that matter. I wasn't one of those people that, you know, I can say at 
three years old, I was selling my pencils to the kid next door to me. Like that wasn't, that wasn't me. Um, I was always, you know, I was always very curious in, in nature. And I think that, um, probably it started for me when I started making my first, you know, my first real money, um, you know, when I was in college and on the back of that experience, I think, you know, I had a bit of exposure and I actually fell in love with, with marketing, with digital marketing. That was my, that was something that I felt really passionate about. So yeah, I would say that I was working as a recruiter. It was my first job out of college and there was, probably 15 other businesses in this somewhat co-working incubator space. And I saw these guys building websites like old school. This is going back to sort of 2008, maybe. Um, and yeah, I just would walk past and gravitate toward the whole experience. And I left a paying job to take an unpaid internship and start working at a digital agency. I just really had a passion for it. So this was an incubator that uh, where other people trying to build businesses and that's where you interned? I interned at an agency in Australia. I was paid at this recruitment firm that was partly owned by, it wasn't a conglomerate, it was a couple of guys who had invested in sort of 20 different businesses. So they just brought all of the businesses into one uh, one office space back then. Well, did they have a hands-on or hands-off approach? Uh, they were very hands-on. They were very hands-on as a as a business, yeah. So, and you were working in one of the companies that that was yeah, in that, I, that kind of, the agency. I was working at a recruitment company mm-hmm. in that environment, and and ultimately left to go for a completely unrelated business and took an unpaid internship just so that I could get exposure into working in the field. I see. So what I'm curious about is when you worked in that uh, recruitment uh, work under this conglomerate that had this incubation, um, what was that like? In terms, Because this is like very early in your... Hated it. What was it like seeing these startups, young companies being taken on and being supported? You know what? It was, it was an exciting environment as a general, as a general, I hated what I was doing for work and the company that I was working in and the environment that was created for me in this sort of microcosm, but to see like a beverage company, you know, and to see uh, an agency and to see all these other company, a couple of technology companies, um, that was pretty exciting. That was something that, again, like if I hadn't have had that exposure and seen what other people were working on, I I don't know that I would have found my feet as quickly as I did into an industry that, you know, I've really gravitated toward for the, you know, for at least 15 years now. Yeah. Well, it sounds like the that kind of an environment is, is something that motivated you and then you found your real interest area of digital marketing and then that's where you you specialize right yeah yeah that was that was you know for about 10 years i was doing everything from web design to content production tv commercials um ux ui work uh photography you know for 
like you called out at the start, Sony and MasterCard, Mercedes-Benz, Medtronic, I was the largest Facebook media buyer for a couple of years there in Australia and, you know, did some massive things um, when I moved to Los Angeles and worked with some of those companies that I mentioned in the space. And it was, yeah, very, very exciting and, and a lot of fun, but, you know, really, really important stepping stones. Yeah. So are you telling me growing up as a kid, these are the kinds of things that right now really gets you excited and then you love doing. There was no connection, like there was no, like the, the seeds being planted somewhat. Do you know what? It's hard to, it's hard to say, like I studied architecture and dropped out after about a year and a half. Like I, I, I would say like, I, I really loved everything that was creative and design. And that was like the thing that, that I liked. Um, and then after dropping out, I went into marketing and management. I would say like the, the thread, the continuous thread or trend throughout my career is like having that, um, ability to have creativity and and think through big vision and see how that can be brought into reality has definitely been something like the whole you know that whole 10 year 10 years or so was coming up with concepts big ideas and concepts and then actually working through and managing client expectations and the projects and bringing them from idea to life so i would say it's that that would be the therapy that you're unlocking for me right now (laughs) so the creativity is what appeals to you Uh, but yoni i picked up something else uh, in this conversation uh, that that initial environment of this that incubator environment where different ideas different people working in different things is what you are doing right now yourself for sure And, and of course Every one of those people, they are creating something, right? So they're creating either a product or they, they all have dreams. Now, nobody, nobody goes into an incubator just to sell groceries to make money, right? So they're, all, they're all chasing after a dream. So uh, that's what you wrapped yourself in. And, and what is admirable to me is you created exactly that as your business environment. So people always come back to their roots, I guess. I think, uh, yeah, I think that's definitely something that I'd never even considered up until this very conversation right now. But yeah, in in hindsight, that's, yeah, it's it's coming back to to the roots and maybe some of the things that that I saw, you know, when I was in my, you know, early 20s. Yeah, well, well, that's what comes out of the therapy session. Yeah. <laughs> so... Thank you. Uh, it's because it's uh, you know we are too close to the subject matter and we don't really know why we do what we do and uh, when somebody who has nothing to do with it uh, sees and hears and uh, yeah, clearly it's a different way. This is great. Uh, so Yoni, uh, tell us how can people reach you uh, and give a share your contact information with us. I'm very active on LinkedIn of, of all the social platforms. Yanni Kosminski is where you'll find me or my name, Yanni, at any one of our brands, businesses that we own, Multiply Me, MII, uh, Southcoal.co, or we are Escala. Great. And we'll obviously have your contact information with your episode. So anybody wants to reach out, uh, feel free. And Yoni is a great guy, as you heard, very knowledgeable. So uh, I'm sure that he'll return 
valuable answers for your business. So thank you, Yoni. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Nick. It was great. Before I wrap up, I want to remind everyone to visit www.cellcore.co forward slash legends and mention Amazon Legends to get a free comprehensive audit and a $500 statement credit. It's time to conquer Walmart with Cellcore by your side. Thank you. And this brings us to the end of another episode, and I'll see you on the next one. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the episode, and share it with someone you think would benefit from it too.